Hello, wrestling fans. My name is Al Getz, and this is Charting the Territories for April 2023. I'm here, and along with me is my faithful sidekick, companion, co-host, and friend, Mr. John Boucher. That's a lovely introduction. <laughs> I'm smiling. I don't know if you could hear the smile in my voice. I'm smiling from that lovely introduction. How are you, Al? Happy from that, April. From ear to ear. Happy April to you as well. I'm I'm doing good. Baseball season is underway. And mm-hmm. so far I have attended uh, two games in person and the Braves have lost wow. both of them. So, oh, no. So hopefully, well, I'm going tonight. We're recording this Monday, April 10th. I'm going to the game tonight against the Cincinnati Reds. So hopefully we will uh, get back on track. The Reds still have a uh, Barry Larkin, uh, Barry Larkin, Chris Sabo. Are those guys still around, or is that the? Uh, they are not. I, I, they might be, you know, announcers. Uh, okay. f- uh, but no, I, I think the Cincinnati Reds are not, uh, not what they once were, not the powerhouse that they were in years past. Good bad. Okay. Yeah. Now this month on the podcast, we're not going to Atlanta. We're not going to Cincinnati. We are going to Texas and. We are going to West Texas to look at Western States sports, which in wrestling circles is better known as the Amarillo Territory. And we're going to look at it in 1971. Of course, a lot of the things we discuss on this podcast can be found on our website as part of A Year in the Life. So be sure to visit the site at chartingtheterritories.com to check that out. Now, in 1971 in Amarillo, John, the weather forecast called for a devastating cyclone to hit the region (laughs) with the potential to cause severe damage to all three wrestling members of the Funk family. We'll also look at the entire roster for the territory, highlight some of the biggest feuds, and building on what we discussed last month when we talked about Georgia and how local promoter Fred Ward seemed to have a little more say in laying out the cards in his towns, We're going to discuss some of the local promoters in Western states sports and what influence they had on the cards and wrestlers in their towns. All that, plus our regular monthly features, including John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia, This Month I Learned, and we kick things off with Stuff John Bought Me Off eBay. Mm -hmm. So this month, John bought me an album. Uh, mm-hmm. Once again, we are back to the uh, recorded audio uh, <laughs> stylings of uh, uh, involving wrestlers or wrestling adjacent. And this is the music from the motion picture soundtrack Body Slam, mm-hmm. which was a staple on, I believe it was HBO or maybe Cinemax or one of the other uh, cable channels in the uh, late 80s. So, yeah. John, you, of course, have seen Body Slam, right? I have. I haven't seen it since the late 80s. I have not done a rewatch. I don't currently own a copy of it. Well, but, uh, now, I guarantee that when you saw it, you did not see it in the theaters, correct? Oh, absolutely not. No. no and why like And why is that? Was it straight a straight-to-video release? Uh, there, there were legal wranglings that uh, oh. <laughs> caused it to not have a theatrical release. Basically, um, the original screenplay was written by two attorneys, Shell Litton or Lighton, L-Y-T-T-O-N, and Steve Burkow. Um, and then they hired a uh, a director, Hal Needham, who apparently made several rewrites to their screenplay, so much so that Shell and Steve were really pissed off 
about it. And uh, since they were lawyers, they did what they know best and they uh, sort of uh, went to court over this. And, and because of that, the movie did not have a theatrical release. Interesting. The director, though, that was the guy... He did a bunch of like uh, the, the Reynolds and Cars. He liked a bunch. I remember like Smoking the Bandit, Cannibal Run. I think too. Right? I, yeah, it could be. I definitely recognize the name Hal yeah. Needham, and that could be it. And of course, Cannibal Run is literally the greatest movie ever made. Oh, yeah. So if he's going to rewrite uh, a script written by two people with no ex- little experience in the movie business, yeah. it should be okay. good. Now, Shell and Steve apparently also formed their own uh, movie. Uh, shingle uh to distribute movies uh so they just they were attorneys that decided they know more about uh uh the movie business than anyone else they were going to do their own thing and i don't Mm. think it worked out well for them but this soundtrack features two tracks by uh bachman turner overdrive (laughs) yep although the version of taking care of business used is not the original no Uh, i think it's a a re-recording perhaps with different uh personnel uh, there's yeah. also a really bad song by Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. And for me to say Ooh. that Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons did a bad song, you know it's got to be bad because I love Frankie Valli. Yeah, it's like a terrible like uh, like 80s, mid-80s uh, style cover of right, the Book of Love. Like, tell me who wrote the Book of Love. Oh, yeah, not good. There are also a couple of songs by a band called Kick. And then there's a song called Body Slam. And uh, uh, let's let's go ahead and play a little clip from Body Slam by Debbie Lighton. Body Slam by Debbie Light. Now, I'm not going to say nepotism was involved in this, but you may have caught on to the fact that Debbie Lighton, L-Y-T-T-O-N, shares the same unusual last name as the people who wrote and produced this thing originally, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the two, Shell Lighton. Oh, interesting. Now, I did a little Googling on Debbie to see if she was a, uh, had any, you know, history as a singer. She does not. She did, however, have a history as an actress. Um, nothing made the most major thing was she was actually a regular on Days of Our Lives. 
Okay. Although I believe she was a child actress at the time, so it, it wasn't you know necessarily an everyday type role. Um, but she also portrayed woman number two in the Garbage Pail Kids movie. Oh wow! That's quite a quite a resume. So, so there you go, Debbie Lighton, oh. singer of Body Slam, presumably daughter of producer yeah. and uh, writer Shell Lighton and uh, one-time child actor for, uh, on Days of Our Lives. John, did you ever get into soap operas? Um, I did uh, my freshman year of college, 1991-92. I had a, a, a break in between classes uh, that was not long enough where I could go back home or do anything study anything it was just not you know it was not not long enough so i spent that time in like the the student lounge and i would watch uh i believe all my children that's the one with eric kane right erica kane yes yeah and Susan a young Rich. kelly ripa i believe was uh -huh. on that uh, on that show back then so but so for you know maybe like six or eight months i, I watched uh, all my children that's that's about it though okay i got i got into it i got into days of our lives one Ooh. life to live in general hospital oh wow um, the trifecta. Uh, it was the, the big three. I think in the case of Days of Our Lives, I think as a wrestling person, I loved uh, Stefano Demura and Victor Kyriakis. Mm. They, they they were the big heels on the show. Yeah, they yeah. were like, you know, the Captain Lou Albano and Freddie Blassie of uh, <laughs> late 80s, early 90s daytime TV. They had stables and it was usually their family members. But every now and then, like, you know. Demi, you know, Demura's daughter would marry one of the baby faces on the show. And, Ooh, you know, was yeah. it a swerve or was it for, was she turning? Uh, yeah. It's the same <laughs> damn thing as wrestling. And I think that's why yeah. I got into it. You know, we always talk about wrestling being a male soap opera. There are many more similarities into how the, you know, shows are quote unquote booked that the, the same yeah. things that you see in wrestling often happen in soap operas, yeah. but body slam starred, uh, non-wrestlers Dirk Benedict and Tanya Roberts. Mm -hmm. And uh, the two top-billed wrestling personalities were Roddy Piper and Captain Lou Albano. But a slew of other wrestlers appeared, including uh, a couple of Samoans and uh, Jack Armstrong, who ever, any movie that was ever shot in Southern California about wrestling, Jack Armstrong has a cameo in it. <laughs> There's a lot of weird cameos in this. Like, was it like Gomez Adams? John Aston, <laughs> Charles Nelson Riley, I think, shows up briefly. Uh, and at the end, like, there's a bunch of wrestlers who aren't in the rest of the movie, I think. They just show, like, a, they're just in audience members, I think, in the crowd. I think, like, Flair, Bruno, Freddie yeah, Blassie. Bruno. I just all just show up there. But, uh, Apparently, during the filming, uh, during the wrestling scenes, which were even more choreographed than normal wrestling because they had to do multiple takes, the fans caught on that, okay, this isn't real because they're like reshooting scenes. And Piper says that he actually improvised a legitimate, you know, or a legitimate looking brawl in between takes <laughs> so that some of the fans might say, okay, uh, they really do hate each other, but they're, you know, they're, they're trying to work together or something. Yeah, yeah. That sounds like a good Piper story. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, well, again, one of those stories that may be true, may not be true. We're going to get yeah. into a lot of those later today, particularly <laughs> when we talk about the lawman, Don Slatton. Oh yeah. Who's here. Um, but the centerpiece of, 
a year in the life on chartingtheterritories.com is what we call the Territory Fact Sheet, which is a nifty infographic containing tons of unique information, giving you an idea into how the territory actually functioned. It includes a map of all the regularly run towns, and for Western state sports in 1971, the bulk of the towns were in West Texas, with the main ones being Amarillo, Lubbock, Odessa, Abilene, and El Paso. They also ran a couple of border towns uh, right across the Texas-New Mexico border, and that's Clovis and Hobbs, as well as Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is a bit further west. They also went as far north as Colorado Springs, Colorado. They ran Colorado Springs and Pueblo several times a year, maybe, maybe less than several, somewhere between a few and several. I'm not... I'm never sure of what the cutoff is that makes some, you know, between a few and several. John, what do you think? <laughs> like, uh, is five I, a few or is five several? I, my, I, I arbitrarily choose uh, six as six? my number. Okay. I, more than. I, I think three, three and four are definitely few. Yes. And I would say seven is definitely several. I guess the question is whether five or six is where, you know, few ends and several begins. Yeah. We'll have to Five ask some, uh, I, don't, I don't even know who, who would be the expert on, on such a thing, but it's not I me and it's not you. Oh. <laughs> uh, they also ran spot shows throughout the region, including some small towns in the Oklahoma panhandle. And they even went into Kansas, a small town called Liberal Kansas, which lies... Uh, right on the border between Kansas and Oklahoma in the western part of the state. Now, knowing the demographics of Kansas and Oklahoma, I do find the naming of a town there you know, being called liberal to be quite interesting. All relative, you know. Perhaps it's some bastion, some hippie bastion in yeah. the middle of, you know, in the middle of the, the dust plains where all the, uh, you know, the hippies, maybe that's where all the hippie wrestlers yeah. from the 70s came from, Boyette. Uh, I was I was looking at some outlaws in Tennessee in the early 70s, and there was a guy there named Hippie Ricky Kelso. <laughs> and I wonder if that's where they got the, the yeah. name for Ashton Kutcher's character on that 70s show, Kelso. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be wild if that turned out to be true, but it seems like a stretch. So <sighs> it's a, you know, a lot of the towns, you know, the, the bulk of the towns are within a couple of hours of one another. But Albuquerque on Sundays is a long haul. If they're doing Colorado, it was usually on a Saturday. So that's a long haul, too. But even with the short drives, there's something different because there's literally nothing in between many of these towns. Now, a couple of years ago, I was doing some research down there. I was staying in Odessa and I had to drive to Hobbs, New Mexico. It was only an hour and a half, but it felt like four hours because there's literally nothing. And the majority of it was down one long, lonely two lane highway with nothing to see but dust, oil wells and turbines. Oh, wow. So it's like when you think of when you think of stereotypically the, the you know, the, the Texas New Mexican drive that's exactly what it was like yeah i, I mean and and this was in you know 2021 yeah, uh, yeah. in the fall and so <laughs> i could imagine what it was like 50 years earlier uh no wonder these guys you know had to you know throw pee at one another when driving down the highway you know, to get into all sorts of shenanigans on the road because there was literally nothing else to do there was wow. uh, there was literally one 
gas station. I, I, most of it was down one road. At one point, I had to turn and then go down another road for a, a part of the stretch. And I think there was a gas station at that intersection, and that was it. Wow. Yeah. So uh, now in Amarillo in 1971, they typically ran two cards per night with split crews, though the Thursday night shows in Amarillo was usually all hands on deck and they wouldn't run a second show. And then there are times when some of the other larger cities in the territory may have had an all hands on deck show uh, instead of running two. A lot of it has to do with whether or not they can line up a show in one of the towns they don't run every week. Mondays were typically always Abilene and El Paso, but the uh, some of the towns, some of the second towns that were run on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Fridays weren't weekly. So it's a matter of if they could get a, a, a show in San Angelo or Brownfield or some of these other towns. And if they couldn't, they would just try and load up Lubbock or Odessa uh, and claim it's a special super spectacular uh, in 1971, there was an average of about 21 wrestlers being booked regularly at any given time in the territory. So you can see if they're typically running two shows a night, that's an average of 10 or so each, though it usually wasn't 10 on one and 10 on the other. If they were running Lubbock and a smaller town on the same night, they would send six or eight to the smaller town and have, you know, 10 or 12 or more, 12 or more on the bigger show. It's not, you know, the term wrestling show you know, isn't a standard. Uh, it doesn't mean there were, you know, they were X wrestlers per show or however many wrestlers were in the territory, half worked one, half worked the other. They, they, they differed it up greatly based on, you know, what each town was drawing, what its capacity was, what its population was, what few they had lined up. So even, you know, even when Abilene and El Paso are both run on Mondays, that doesn't mean 10 always went here and 10 always went there or whatever. It may have varied greatly depending on what uh, each town had going on. Uh, in El Paso, I believe they had two different venues that I think were part of the larger fairgrounds complex. They ran the Coliseum, but then at times they would run a building referred to as the judging arena. Now, John, do you know what they were judging at the judging arena? I'm, I would venture the, uh, livestock would be my guess. You're absolutely correct. Uh, the, at the at fairgrounds complexes, they typically have arenas for auctions or judging of, of livestock, uh, cattle and whatnot, particularly in a place like Texas in yeah. the early seventies. So I would assume based on, you know, whether they could run the Coliseum or the judging arena would, would impact how many wrestlers they might've had on that night, the judging arena, I'm assuming was the smaller of the two venues. So they might've, you know, decided to load up Abilene one Monday and run the judging arena or because they couldn't run the Coliseum and had to run the judging arena. The same thing would apply. Now using our spot rating statistic, which measures a wrestler's average position on the cards, the main eventers in West Texas in 1971 uh, consisted of three baby faces and two heels. On the baby face side, you had Dory Funk Sr. and Terry Funk, joined by Ricky Romero. Keep in mind, Dory Jr. is the world heavyweight champion at this time and is spending most of his days out of the territory. On the heel side, you have Ciclone Negro and one of the Infernos, the one generally referred to as Clubfoot Inferno. 
The other Inferno ended up a little lower on the cards as an upper mid-carder. Uh, any, you know, they usually wrestled in tag team matches, but occasionally they would have singles bouts. And when that happened, the second Inferno, the one they called Clubfoot, was usually given the more prominent match. Um, they called him Clubfoot because he wore a loaded up boot as his gimmick. Um, you know, the, the, the same thing that all, so many heel wrestlers did where they would, you know, load up the boot. But in this case, the boot also had a thicker sole than the other boot. And for this reason, it is generally believed that the two Infernos, who at this time were Curtis Smith and Rocky Smith, alternated which one was the clubfoot inferno because the boot was legitimately very uncomfortable to wear because you have two two different boots, two different size boots at the same time. Okay. Uh, and I think we talked about this when we talked about the assassins, how assassin number two was always Jody when it was Jody and Tom. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, inferno number one and clubfoot inferno were not always it wasn't always Curtis as, you know, Clubfoot and Rocky as number one. It's believed that they switched it up uh, because of the boot being uncomfortable. Hmm. I've always wondered with the club, various Clubfoots, if there's a, if, you know, do they have a, 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 a left Clubfoot and a right Clubfoot? Like do they switch them off from day to day. So is it not to, uh, you know, mess up their back or is there, or is there just one club foot that they boot that they wear, you know, on the left or the right exclusively. I, that was my, yeah, I, I would imagine given, I believe the, the storyline reason for these boots with the infernos was because of a quote unquote injury or gotcha. a physical issue that they couldn't switch it up because nah. the, the storyline was, you know, he needs this boot on his right foot because of this. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. But again, you know, perhaps uh, wrestling fans didn't think the way that we do and they could get away with switching it up. But that would have been another way to alleviate the stress on the body yeah. uh, would be to switch up which foot it was. Other upper mid carters, aside from the first Inferno, were a pretty heel heavy collection of talent. You have Ricky Hunter under a mask as the Spartan. You also had Bull Ramos, Killer Carl Cox. The Beast and the Butcher, uh, in this case, the Beast was Yvonne Cormier, and the Butcher was actually billed as Butcher Brower, better known as Fred Sweetan. Mm. You also have Pac Song, and you have a masked Tom Jones as the Gladiator. Now, seeing Tom Jones not only under a mask, but also as a heel, was unusual. Yeah, you got me there. That's very funny and very funny and accurate. Yeah, so I I, I need a Tom Jones to write a sequel. So every now and then, it was unusual. Uh, on the babyface side in the upper mid-carder category are Lord Alfred Hayes, Roberto Soto, and Nick Kozak. I always get a kick out of trying to picture Lord Alfred Hayes as a babyface. Yeah, it just doesn't fit to me. But he actually, and it wasn't a deal where he came in as a heel and turned babyface. I believe when he first started in Amarillo, he came in as a babyface. Hmm. Uh, it just, it's just so weird to me to picture that character as a babyface. But apparently, he was. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever seen any. I've seen the video of him as as a heel, and he's it's fantastic. Oh, he's like, great. He he was so great. good. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, but I've never seen any 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 video footage. I, I don't believe of him as a as a babyface. I'm curious how that how that plays. Yeah. Well, if anyone if anyone has ever stumbled across footage of a babyface, Lord Alfred Hayes, or even I guess Judo Al Hayes back yeah. in the day, let John know. John, plug your Twitter real quick. Oh, at uh, John underscore Boucher B O U C H E R, and uh, you know tag me in that baby. Yeah, tag him in that. Let him know if we've got babyface. Alfred Hayes. Now, there were also two upper mid-carders who turned during the year. Buck Robley began the year as a heel. He got into a legitimate automobile accident, which was likely the origin story of the loaded arm brace he would use for many years. Uh, At one point, I think he had the record for the longest uh, arm injury, although it was (laughs) broken by Iron Mike Sharp in 96, I believe. (laughs) Uh, he was moved into a managerial role uh, while he was recovering, managing the team of Bobby Hart and Lorenzo Parente. But he ended up turning babyface out of that deal when Hart and Parente got into a feud with the Infernos, who were managed by J.C. Dykes. Uh, and uh, that the tag team feud sort of spun off into some six-man tags and then some singles bouts between Robley and Dykes, where Robley was clearly the baby face. And then when he returned back uh, in to action as a full-time wrestler, he was a baby face. Now, the other one is a guy who I think every territory he ever worked, he would come in as a baby face and in short order turn heel. And that mm-hmm. was Bob Roop. The all-American back jumper, as Gordon Sully called <laughs> Yes. Uh, and it <laughs> actually, given Roop's background and his role and his you know, his personality, it really fits for him because he's a legitimate, you know, Olympic wrestler, clean cut, good looking guy, but not charismatic at all. So you can easily see him coming in, being spectacular in the ring, but the fans not taking to him. And you can see how the character would sort of get upset with that. Uh, It reminds me of the hockey talk man when he went to Vince land. Yeah, he started off as a baby face. I think this was the plan all along, Uh, you know, and then he would, you know, complain about having to, you know, talk to the sniveling little kids and whatnot and turned heel. (laughs) So this was what Roop did here. Pretty sure he did it in Florida. He did it in Southern California. He did it in Mid-South. And what's funny is it's the same M.O. as another wrestler very similar to Roop, who in real life Roop hated with a passion. And that's Hmm. Dale Lewis. Interesting. Dale had the same thing. He was a big guy. He was a legit amateur wrestler, and he had little to no charisma. Now, Roop Roop did have charisma, but not what we typically think of when we think of professional wrestling. Yeah. Uh, So he comes off as sort of a bland kind of guy, and it makes sense to turn heel. And Dale Lewis did the same thing in a lot of places. And when we talked about Bob Roop's book, Last year, Deathmatch. Mm. Um, one of the characters in the book was named Lou Dallas. And Roop just, you could tell you. by the way he wrote the character that Roop hated Dale Lewis, who he was, who was, who he was based on. Uh, now, funny. yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Roop was like, even, even, even the territories where he did not necessarily turn heel in the ring, he would usually turn heel in the office. <laughs> True. Uh, he yeah. turned he turned heel on someone somehow some way yeah in yeah, some yeah. fashion yeah 
Uh, a little further down the cards, the mid-carder category features a lot of wrestlers who spent much of their time here in tag teams. The aforementioned Bobby Hart and Lorenzo Parente, also Mr. Okuma and Masio Koma, and Bobby Duncombe and Woody Farmer. And this, of course, was Bobby Duncombe Sr. Now, altogether, those three teams held the territory's tag team titles for about eight months during 1971. But for all three of those teams, even when they held the titles, their spot rating was somewhere in the 0.6 to 0.7 range, which would put them in the upper mid-carder category. But as a whole, they're all mid-carders based on our spot rating. And this is similar to something we talked about last year on the podcast, how when Bob Backlund came here and held the Western States heavyweight title, he was positioned much lower on the cards than we usually see the champ. So I talked to my pal Chris Knights, who wrote, uh, literally wrote the book on Amarillo. He wrote <laughs> Amarillo 1911 to 1960 with Scott Teal, and the book is available from Crowbar Press. He told me that typically, no matter who the champions were, it was the wrestlers that were feuding with the Funks that typically got the main event spots and not necessarily the champions, which makes sense if yep. you think about it. And this explains why we see the Infernos rated higher than these other tag teams, even though the Infernos only held the titles for a few weeks. But they were feuding with the Funks for much of the year, or a Funk and a non-Funk in tag team <laughs> matches. And so that's why we see the Infernos higher up on the cards than these other heel tag teams like Hart and Parente, Okuma and Koma. And of course, Duncombe and Farmer were baby faces. But speaking of Chris Knights, he also is uh, an editor for WrestlingData.com. I believe we've mentioned that in the past. But he's recently started making regular wrestling posts from his Twitter account at Chris Wrestling. And that's K-R-I-S-S. So at K-R-I-S-S Wrestling. He's actually posting a lot of stuff from 1971 charting the uh the you know the travels of Dory Funk Jr in 1971 with all his known NWA world title defenses now when the funk family whether it be Dory senior Terry or Dory Jr when they weren't facing the infernos in 1971 there's a good chance that one of them was facing Cyclone Negro on our a year in the life series on the website, you can learn a little bit more about Cyclone's background and his 1971 Amarillo exploits in a profile written by David Gibb. Uh, David is the author of How to Ace Your Comeback, a book we've reviewed in the past on this podcast. It's a fictitious whodunit of sorts set in the world of professional wrestling. To celebrate the one-year anniversary of the book, David has actually launched a new serialized wrestling tale called Tag Team, with new chapters every week. And you can check that out at aceyourcomeback.com. And if you like what you read, consider picking up a copy of How to Ace Your Comeback, which was a very fun and easy read with a lot of nods to wrestling in the territorial era. Uh, John, have you gotten Steve Kern's book yet? I have I have it. I have not read it yet, though. It's in that, it's in that I, pile. I think I I read the first two chapters. I'll tell you, I'm already hooked. I mean, I, I knew the basics about Steve's father. Yeah. But what, uh, and you'll find this out, the story of how his father and his mother met adds another 
element to that story of uh, of the senior Kern's exploits uh, in wartime. So, uh, so far I'm hooked. And this was written by Steve along with Ian Douglas. Ian also uh, helped with Brian Blair's autobiography, which was another very good book in the realm of wrestler biographies. It's very honest and straightforward. It's not, I invented this. I sold this out. I, you know, I'm the best wrestler ever, except for politics held me back. Yeah, no. <laughs> what I love about Blair's book too is he has no problem telling tremendously embarrassing stories about himself. Which yeah, what, it's what, I love that about I love that about his book. Yeah, <laughs> you can tell that you know he's he's uh, not holding you know he's not lying about things because he's putting himself in the most awkward, embarrassing situations. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, David's profile of Cyclon on our website is mostly focused on 1971. We do want to talk more about his career and life as a whole, and really. To guys our age, John, unless you grew up in places where they were a main eventer, uh, guys like Cyclone Negro, Black Gordman, and El Gran Goliath, they're guys I had heard of, I knew a little bit about them, but there's so much more to their careers mm -hmm. that we don't know, unless you know you lived in, in a place where they were a superstar. So let's talk about the Black Cyclone, who I believe was born Ramon Eduardo Rodriguez. But again, you know, you never know what's in a name until you yeah. truly dig into it. Uh, uh, so, John, let, and let's start with that. Let's start with what we believe his real name was. Yeah. Um, so Wikipedia and a lot of the documents list him as Ramon Eduardo Rodriguez, and then it's. However, it's he's a tough guy to research for several reasons. First of all, his name, very, 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 very common name. Um, and but I did find something about him in his marriage announcement from like the courthouse notes from a Florida paper in '76, where his name is listed as Eduardo Dominguez Rodriguez. So, and that's from the courthouse. So you think that would be that should be legal. legit. So that yeah. you know brings into question everything we know. And again, not and those names don't make it any easier to research him because again, those are no. very common names. Um, yeah. David Gibbs' profile starts off with a story that I've often heard attached to Cyclone Negro that as an amateur he fought Floyd Patterson in the Pan Am Games. So again, John put on his detective hat and <laughs> decided to see if he could confirm that or not. And, you know, there's, uh, you know, I can't, can't confirm it. Uh, I can't say it didn't happen. Uh, you know, but, but if you had to guess. I would say no. I would say that is, I would say that is, that is not True. And, and His family tells the story as if it's true, or at least as if they believe it to be true. Right. Your, uh, your reasoning for that is that you found a list of boxers who competed at the Pan yeah. American Games. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so this was believed to have happened in 1951. 51, correct. And um, you checked this list of yeah. boxers. Yeah. And did you find anyone with a name that could have been Cyclone? No, there is no Cyclone, no, no Floyd Patterson. So um, not, not only was there no one that could have been Cyclone, 
Floyd Patterson never competed in the Pan Am Games. Yeah, no, according, according to book. this site. Yeah, and I actually bought a book, like a Floyd uh, Patterson biography, and there's no mention of him uh, uh, fighting at the right. 51 Pan Am Games. The first, his first big thing was like the 52 Olympics, I believe. So, uh, so we can't rule out that they never face one another in some fashion whether outside the Pan Am games or uh, sparring or what have you, that may have happened. And it sort of got, you know, each time the story was retold, it was, you know, they added a little embellishment to it. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. the statement, you know, Ciclone Negro fought Floyd Patterson at the 1951 Pan Am games seem is most likely false. Yeah. There's, you know, it, it's and it's it, you know it really seems like one of those things like you said like promoters repeated over and over from 1960 on that just everyone took as the truth and with his family you know his wife or his widow now at the time you know they didn't marry until the mid 70s so she wasn't there and you know, she, she was, was much she was younger. much younger than him yeah. at that time so she wasn't she even wasn't she wouldn't have been, she wouldn't have been alive in 1951 no. yeah. but you know because of his wrestling, regardless, his knockout punch was one of his trademarks, along with the you know headbutt pile driver brain, brain buster and the and the big huge bumps he would take for everybody. Um, right. Yeah. So there's, it's it's so hard with again like talking about the name. There's there's uh, either one of those names is so hard to research. You know, with guys who aren't born in the U.S., I'll you know I'll usually try even to find harder sort doing, of yeah. yeah some sort of immigration naturalization record. So we could talk about them post. Blah, 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 blah. But with that name, even after narrowing the search results using his birth year, year of death, place of birth, still yielded upwards of 30,000 immigration and naturalization results. <laughs> and sadly, John, you cannot crank, you cannot go through them at the rate of a thousand a day to get these done in a month. <laughs> So, I, I, as much as I tried, yeah. maybe uh, maybe in the you know, forty years from now, if, if John and I are still doing this damn podcast, <laughs> we'll have an answer. If he goes through, you know, five a day every day, uh, we'll circle back. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll check back. Uh, he also, aside from being a boxer, he also is a welder, hmm. uh, and of course, I get all sorts of flash dance, you know, <laughs> vibes when I think of welders. But uh, Cyclone Negro is definitely not. Uh, probably didn't look as good, you know, getting all sweaty and, 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 you know, working as Jennifer Beals did in that movie. It's, uh, interesting him, the reason given for him transitioning from boxing to wrestling was that he was too heavy. He got too big. Love the, love the weights. Yeah. Uh, too much to be a, a boxer any longer. It sounds like a strange reason, you know, but it's not the, the, the first time I've heard that said about a boxer turned wrestler a while back. We talked about Swede Hansen. I don't know the year, year, year and a half ago, maybe. And the same was true for him. You know, Willie Gilsenberg, the future figurehead WWWF president, was a big deal, arguably a bigger deal in the boxing world than the wrestling world, especially in Jersey, where Sweet Hansen was from, despite his Confederate flag. Uh, and a similar story was given for his transition into wrestling. Too, too big for boxing. But, you know, the reality of his situation was more likely that Swede was a commanding physical presence, but not a great boxer. And that commanding physical presence 
right. Can I, take, I can, can take you further in wrestling than as a boxer. Yeah, I, I could see boxers needing to be more, you know, uh, quick on their feet. And and they're all in great shape, don't get me wrong. They all are well-defined. But, you know, the bodybuilder's physique is not one made for moving, you know, back and forth and in and out and ducking and weaving and bobbing. No, no, no. So Cyclone gets into professional wrestling. Um and ends up having a nice run as a babyface in Florida for a few years before coming to Amarillo. Now, we've talked often in the past about how we can use the spot rating to see newcomers and how they are slowly pushed up the cards by getting wins over, you know, first in the opening match and then the following week maybe in the second match. And they, they keep moving up the cards slowly. And you can literally see this by tracking their week-to-week spot rating. But Ciclone Negro, when he came to Amarillo for the first time in early 1971, his first night on the territory, he wins. He's in the main event against Terry Funk in a loser leave town match, and he wins. Hmm. And two nights later in a different town, he does the same thing. Now, in some of the other towns, they do bring him up more slowly, but his spot rating compared to other typical newcomers. He starts off much higher on the cards. Uh, so it's clear that from day one, the Funks knew that this guy was going to be pushed as as the top heel. In fact, those early wins over Terry set up Dory Jr. coming in two weeks later. And in those same two towns, one was for sure El Paso and the other was the Wednesday town, which is either Lubbock or Odessa. It, it escapes me at the moment which one. But Dory Jr. would come in two weeks later and defend the world title against Cyclone. So week one, he's beating Terry Funk and and sending him out of town. Terry's actually going to Florida for two months. And in week three, he's got a world title shot against Dory Jr. So that's clearly a case where they knew this guy was going to be a main eventer from day one. Yeah. So let's let's uh, let's take a look at what we've got of Cyclone in the ring. And John, you've compiled a curated playlist of YouTube footage of Cyclone Negro. And you can see this on our YouTube channel at uh, just search for charting the territories on the YouTube as us old folks call it. (laughs) But John, uh, you found several matches over about 12 years Mm -hmm. worth of time from uh, the earliest one being in late 1972, going all the way to 1984. So tell us what you found of Cyclone Negro on YouTube. The oldest one from uh, late 72, December 72, I believe, all in Japan, all Japan. It's uh, Cyclone Negro teaming with Abdul the Butcher, White Pants, Abby, and I'm a huge fan of of white pants, early 70s Abby. I will eat it up. Um, I love seeing Abby, <laughs> young Abby, because he's convincingly selling moves and taking bumps. Even takes a couple bumps through the ropes out to the floor here. Um, Cyclone, I think he's like 40 years old here, but he's still in freaking great shape. Looks. Like a big brawny guy, big arms, big chest, just a big dude. Um, and it's funny when I first heard his name and read about him years and years ago, like not having seen him, that's not at all what I expected. I expected to be a man of like a like a slider, like a more of like a traditional slider build luchador wearing a black mask. That's what I imagined a Cyclone Negro being. Um, I was really surprised at how well 
Mystique Lone and, and Abby worked as a team here. I was just sort of expecting them to go in and each do their own thing, but they actually do a really good job of being a heel tag team, uh, like distracting the ref, double teaming, uh, untying the tag rope, you know, choking their opponents with it and then passing it back and forth. I it's, I was really, really uh, surprised. It's a two out of three falls. Cyclone wins the first with a brutal looking shoulder breaker. Second fall ends with the big brawl outside the ring uh, and uh, Sujiyama, Thunder Sujiyama makes it back into the ring. Both teams now tied. Uh, love the way this match ends. Third fall ends when uh, Mashiokoma pins Cyclone after a, a fist to the chest, almost like a single handed version of Ivan Putsky's Polish hammer for your WWF fans. Uh, and it's really cool what Cyclone does here. Like he fake sells like he was hitting the foot with a foreign object. You know, he's pretending to be choking, grabbing his neck like he needs a Heimlich maneuver, rolling around on the ring. And the ref goes through the process of checking uh, both Koma and Tsujiyama for foreign objects for about five minutes. And the, no one knows what the actual end result is going to be. But their victory ends up standing. I thought that was a really cool ending. Uh Got a bunch of Florida stuff, too, from 75. Teaming with Rocky Johnson. Nothing too crazy in this match, just back and forth tag match. Um, and seeing Cyclone here in the ring with Rocky Johnson, Harley Race, and Bob Roop, it, you are able to confirm that, yes, he is indeed a big, big guy. Not, you know, jacked like Rocky Johnson, but a big, big dude. So, uh, so which of them looked more like a former boxer between Cyclone and Rocky? You know, Rocky just sort of has those moves too. You know, he does, and he does that little, little shuffle. Little you shuffle, know? yeah. Little, sh- but Cyclone has that uppercut, man, <laughs> and he it looks really good. That little, little left hand uppercut looks so good, and everybody sells the heck out of it, and it looks awesome. Um, another Florida match from '79 uh, with uh, Cyclone Negro. Teaming with Omar Negro, his brother, better known as Omar Atlas. Um, if I have my chronology correct, I think this was after he was there in Florida as Mr. Uganda. And I, I don't know the exact angle or what have you, but the gist was that he felt cheated by Sonny King, turned babyface, reunited with his brother, uh, his fellow Venezuelan. Um, I, again, this is a pretty short match, but I love seeing Joe LaDuke and Pac Song. It's like such a bizarre looking, scary, cool tag team. And Sonny King with his cowboy hat and lollipop. That's that's uh, the stuff of nightmares, LaDuke and Pac Song. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, there's another one really short one from Florida 82. Uh, Cyclone and El Gran Apollo versus uh, Dory Funk Jr. David Von Erich. Um this one basically Cyclone turns on El Gran Apollo during the match, pile driving him on the floor, busting him open. Um, I was hoping to get more of Dory and Cyclone in the ring together, hearkening back to their early 70s Amarillo heyday, but not a lot of exciting stuff happening there. I think the main thing here was him turning on his partner. Yeah, Dory and David are almost the backdrop to yeah, the angle. Is, and of course, then he'll, he'll David Von Erich is always, uh, oh, you know, the best. Good to the watch. Best. Uh, and probably my favorite one, because uh, I have such a weird fetish for preliminary matches. <laughs> uh, Cyclone versus Don Serrano, Houston, January 82, join in progress here. This match is nine years after the first one I posted, and Cyclone Negro is still in fantastic 
shape. Shaved his head, which makes him look like a younger and more badass. Uh, and he doesn't move here that he does also does in the match from 72, where he's like trapped in a head scissors and he'll roll through. So his opponent is in like a seated position while applying the head scissors. Then he'll do like a handstand just for a balance on his head for four or five seconds and then twist himself out of it. It's such a cool move coming from a big guy like that, because it honestly, it's more like the kind of move you expect during like a Tiger Jackson versus Lord Littlebrook match and not, <laughs> not a Ciclo Negro match. It looks so badass when he does it. Um, this is just a great example of like a 10 minute prelim match back and forth, head scissor, armbar type stuff. You know, they, they display, you know, good sportsmanship until the last three minutes where Serrano doesn't break clean on the rope. And then Ciclone really starts bringing it and finishes Serrano with a move that was almost like a, like a, like a pedigree minus the double underhook. Not super exciting, but like a perfect match for like the second match on a house show. You know, I love, 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 love that. And the last one was from 84 near the end of his career. 52 years old, Cyclone is. Still looks in pretty good shape. Um, regard, and again, regardless of how old he is, everyone still puts him over as being an ex-boxer. And he hits uh, King Tonga, Haku here, with that left-hand uppercut. And he sells the heck out of it. Um, Tonga sells it here in 1984, just like Mashio did in 1972. Ultimately, this match though, is about the veteran doing the honors for the youngster, and Tonga nails Cyclone with an awesome-looking thrust kick there, right to the under the chin. Uh, Cyclone sells it tremendously and gets beat in about five minutes. Um, I love the Serena match, and I love the 72 match from Japan. So if you have to pick two to just watch, I would I would choose those two. Yeah, but it's, you know, such a wide variety of opponents, even just among his Florida matches. You go from uh, yeah. him as a babyface against LeDuke and Pac Song, you know, uh, and then, you know, a few years earlier against Harley and Bob Roop. That, you know, you have to be a really yeah. good wrestler to adapt to all these varying styles. Yep. And, you know, the match with King Tonga, as much as we all know that Haku is the toughest son of a bitch in the world, you know, it, an in his prime Haku versus an in his prime Cyclone Negro. Oof. That's one of those. Maybe <laughs> just maybe Cyclone has a fighting chance, uh, but maybe not. <laughs> I, and we'll never know because, of course, their their primes were about twenty years apart. Yeah. Um, so there, now there's a great article on Slam Wrestling about Cyclone, mm-hmm. and on our website when we go through the roster, I link to numerous articles on Slam Wrestling. We often talk about how so many of these sites and books are are full of embellishments or lies regarding wrestlers. Slam Wrestling and Greg Oliver is one of the best sources as far as weeding out fact from fiction. So if you really want to learn a lot more about many of the wrestlers who worked in Amarillo in 1971, you should check out our site and link to the various Slam Wrestling articles. Uh, a newspaper clipping from 1960 uh, verifies something you, you said earlier. When you first heard the name Ciclo Negro, you, just like me, pictured a masked wrestler. Yeah. It just sound you know, we, and you know, maybe this is, you know, we were, we were you know, young growing up in the 80s. Uh, we probably fell into certain stereotypes. And what, what few Mexican wrestlers we were aware of all wore masks. So perhaps we just hear the name Ciclo Negro and make an assumption. However, that assumption 
turned out to be true because in uh, yeah. 1960, when Cyclone worked in East Texas, uh, he didn't come to West Texas till 71, but he did work in East Texas. Um, he is described in this article, in an article from the Brownsville Herald, Cyclone is described as a broad-shouldered dropkick specialist who wears a black mask. Hmm. Also interesting is reading a little more about the, the, the mask thing um, and how he uh, was unmasked, like it was voluntarily almost. It was, it was a match with, uh, I think it was Pat O'Connor, a title match, NWA title match. And during the match, uh, O'Connor sort of twisted the mask around, like blinding him, uh, blinding Cyclone, and then was able to, you know, get him to do the O'Connor roll, pin him, one, two, three. And Cyclone blamed the mask for the loss and said if he was granted a rematch, another title match, he would unmask and then, then, then that, and that was how he. So I was I'm wondering if, because I've, I've seen later photos of him, not I'm not talking like Mr. Uganda in the 70s, like still like mid 60s, also wearing the mask later. So I'm wondering if this was an angle that they would do in other towns or in other territories where he came in, and and you know would have that sort of right. Thing that's to typically. That's typically how how they would do. They would repeat these things in other places, and, yeah. and you know that finish with the mass wrestler getting their mass twisted up, causing them to lose, happened a lot in this yeah. era. This <laughs> is the first I've heard of the wrestler acknowledging maybe it was a mistake to wear a mask. Yeah. Thus, uh, next time I will take it off. Uh, but that might you know every now and then you see like uh, Al Lovelock when he was the Great Bolo. I think he did a thing where he voluntarily unmasked. So perhaps this was the rationale for that, was the same kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's neat. Now, another uh, clipping. This is this is a, a cute one. And the Modesto B from Modesto, California, 1966. Um, Pepper Gomez versus Ciclone Negro. Uh, Ciclone calls Gomez a girl wrestler. <laughs> yeah. And says that he's not a real Mexican, but a gringo. Yeah, oof, yeah. And Pepper's co- Pepper's comeback is saying that Cyclone Negro is a big bag of wind. Well, <laughs> I mean, literally, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's, why he, that's why he's called Cyclone Negro. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, just calling him a girl wrestler, just that's hilarious <laughs> to me. Another fun headline that you sometimes see back in the days when, you know, Reporters at newspapers actually, you know, were were skilled wordsmiths. That was a good one, yeah. Uh, December 28th, 1966, the Santa Rosa Press Democrat from Santa Rosa, California. The headline, Wrestlers Clean Boots on Foe's <laughs> Face. Here's another tag team that would give me nightmares. Ciclone Negro and the Mongolian Stomper. Oh, geez, man. Yeah. Uh, I guess at some point during the match, they had Pepper Gomez outside the ring and were basically using him <laughs> to clean off the bottom of their wrestling shoes, their boots. <laughs> Such a great visual. <sighs> yeah. So, yeah. We, of course, all of these uh, clippings and articles about Cyclone, we will post on Twitter. So follow me at Al Gets Wrestling. Well, you can also go to our YouTube channel to see all that footage of Cyclone in action. I think at this point, we have uh, given out a good bit of information and trivia about Cyclone Negro. And speaking of trivia, 
Oh, that time. It's time for John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. John, you've been on the streak of all streaks. You are you are approaching Goldberg-like levels of winning. So let's see if we can keep it up. And there's no cattle prod this week. And remember, you do have one lifeline uh, okay. from, from a carryover from several months ago. Okay. First question. Did... Pampero Furpo ever hold a championship title? Yes. Yes. I'm sure he held several, but in this case, the answer says yes, the U.S. heavyweight championship. I believe that would have been uh, for the Sheik, right? The Sheik, he, yeah. he was one I of, would imagine. One of the, a couple of guys that had very brief runs with the title. Um, I'm sure he held many other titles as well, so that's a good one. Question number two. What pro football team drafted Blackjack Mulligan. Huh. Hmm. I'll go with the Kansas City Chiefs. Is that your final answer? Final answer. That is incorrect. According to Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia game, Blackjack Mulligan was drafted by the Denver Broncos. Okay, interesting. Is that is that is it real or is that just? I I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm sure someone one of our listeners can find out. Um, yeah, that's the first I've heard of Bob Windham having been drafted. I've got Blackjack's book with its 34 point type. Maybe I could look that up later. <laughs> Check that out, because maybe we'll maybe we'll give you this one on a technicality. <laughs> okay. Uh, third question: Which wrestler is generally recognized as the European World Champion? This is for like okay, nineteen eighty five. Yeah, that Gord, your yeah. This game came out in the mid nineteen eighties. Could I go with uh, Les Thornton? Is that your final answer? Final answer. Otto Vons. Otto Vons. Oh, God. You, you were trying to think which American wrestler would have been billed as European world Yeah, champion. as opposed like, to an actual had I Had someone asked me this question, I would have thought of Billy Robinson. Oh, yep. Same, who yeah, they the would, r- r- in some places, they would bring him in as that. Um, you know, Bill was that. So, all right. Well, you're one for three. Oh, damn. That's Let's see if we can baseball. salvage this with the fourth question, which is, Normally a true-false question, although this is a fill-in-the-blank question, labeled as true-false, so I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Bottom wrist blank. Bottom wrist lock? Is that your final answer? Uh, Yeah, I guess, yeah. You're correct. Okay. Okay. All right. After a good four or five months of being undefeated... Unchallenged, John comes back down from the heavens, yeah, and is two for four on the day. That was a tough one. I pulled, I pulled it out. Uh, 
the blackjack question, whether it's true or not, you even if if it was, you know, something that was common, that was a hard one. Yeah. I can see overthinking on the auto question. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So yeah. I think uh, perfectly reasonable performance. If not what you wanted to, it's uh, how the trivia ball bounced. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. There I, you yeah, go. It's a, this is a tough, tough one. Tough yeah. One. yeah tough one. They, they all can't be easy. If they were all easy, it wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be a challenge. So now we talked earlier about Dory Funk Jr. For most of the year, he is traveling the world as the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. But he did make numerous appearances in this territory. As a matter of fact, I, I think I've got more than 35 matches here during the year. And the way I calculate the spot ratings and determine who's a full-timer, who's a part-timer, and so on and so forth, Dory Jr. shows up as a part-timer, as, as a regular slash, but, you know, a regular but part-time wrestler. Mm. He really isn't. It's a function of just how I calculate these things. Um, in particular, you have to be in the territory for three weeks out of a five-week period. And when Dory would come in, he's usually in for a week or so at a time. But how it works is he starts the previous Sunday and then stays through all the following week. And then if he comes back two or three weeks later, again, even just once on that last Sunday, my system credits it him as being there for that week. Okay. So it's one of those flukes. Also, when Andre would go to the AWA and stay for a month at a time instead of most places where he's in for one or two weeks. Again, the way I calculate these things, he would get credit for being a regular. Uh, so it's just a weird quirk. Again, these are, you know, full-timers, part-timers. These are things I've made up. These are arbitrary cutoffs I have used that most of the time do delineate between who the regular guys working most every night of the week are and who aren't. But there are some weird quirks along the way. However, I would counter that with this. In 1971, at the time, a fan watching the TV program is Dory Jr. brought up regularly, even if he's not always there. Mm -hmm. Is he portrayed as, quote unquote, a regular character on the TV show, uh, you know, of this? And it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. So again, to a fan in the area, they might hear of Dory Jr.'s exploits, even when he's not there every single week, um, especially given that Senior and Terry are there regularly. It stands to reason that he is portrayed as a character, uh, as opposed to someone who left and might come back at some point in the future. Yeah, and you'd assume that, you know, they probably get occasionally some, you know, a film from wherever he right. was and you know, something like that. Show that on the, on the TV. Yeah. yeah. And when he's in for his eight day runs, he might not only be on TV, they might, they might actually, you know, time it out so that he gets two TVs. Yeah. You know, if he comes in, you know, I think, uh, well, I think they, I think they film TV. Chris Knights would know this better. He'll correct me if I'm wrong. It was either Thursday day or Saturday day would be when they did the Amarillo, the TV out of Amarillo. So, uh, but yeah, depending on when Dory's schedule was, he might even be able to come in to catch that one TV before his week-long run. But again, who knows? Unless unless we had, not only do we need to have the TV from 1971, which we don't have, yeah. but we would need to have it from every market. 
in mm. the territory because they're yeah. all slightly yeah. different because of those yeah. local promos. And in some territories, they actually filmed different TV. Yeah. It's wild to think about whenever you hear about in this era. Uh, I know Florida did it too, I think, for a while. Just like the weekday day TV tapings for these wrestling shows. It's right. crazy to think about now. Like you would never do that now. It's insane. Well, they had no uh, they had no choice but to yeah. do it then because they yeah. needed to run house shows every night. And, you know, again, yeah. they're not looking to fill, you know, these are in the TV studio. They usually have, you know, attendance of 80 and they're yeah. they're all comped. Uh, so it, it's pretty easy to get 80 folks in Tampa, Florida or, you know, Birmingham, Alabama or what yeah. have you yeah. to show up for these little free TV tapings. Now, we talk a little bit about some of the local promoters. Uh Gory Guerrero was the promoter in El Paso. And a lot of times he's bringing in guys like Gordman and Goliath or Mill Mascaris. Although usually when he would bring in Mill, Mill would also work a couple of other nights in, you know, in this territory around it. Um, but Gory also had a few uh, Lucha wrestlers that he would use um, that didn't always work the rest of the towns in the territory, including Gory Guerrero Jr., and in 1971, Gory Guerrero Jr. was the wrestler now known as Chavo Guerrero Sr. Huh. <laughs> so he went from a junior to a senior in the span of, uh, you know, 30 or so years. You also have Nick Roberts uh, promoting Lubbock. And Nick, of course, is the father of Baby Doll. You have uh, Mike London promoting Albuquerque, New Mexico. You have Chief Little Eagle promoting Hobbs, New Mexico. And in Abilene, Texas, we have a guy who, and I like to say this for a lot of guys, but even in a profession full of crazy characters, the lawman Don Slatton stood out as even crazier than the regular amount of crazy. So Slatton was the local promoter in Abilene, and he very clearly had the leeway in how he booked his towns because in Abilene, he was promoted as a main eventer. In the rest of the territory, and he was not a full-time wrestler. He was a regular, but he always worked Abilene and he would occasionally work other towns in the circuit. But when he's booked in Abilene in 1971, his spot rating is above a 0 0.80, making him a main eventer. And when he's in other towns, I believe his spot rating is in the 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6 range. So he's a mid-carder in the rest of the territory, but in his home base of Abilene, where he is the local promoter, he is a main eventer and top star. In particular, in 1971, he has this huge feud with Killer Carl Cox with various Russian chain matches, Texas death matches, so on and so forth. What's interesting is if you read the newspaper articles promoting the shows, they don't come outright and say it, but they sort of imply that local promoter Don Slatton and professional wrestler The Lawman are two different people. Huh. They'll talk about promoter Don Slatton has this great card lined up, blah, 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 blah. And then in the main event, uh, the fantastic wrestler known as The Lawman faces so-and-so. They... They don't come out, you know, they don't say it's two different people. They don't have Slatten necessarily talk about the lawman in the third person, but <laughs> they try to imply or they or, or they go to their way to not tell you it's the same person. Hmm. Slatten is best known in wrestling circles for 
purportedly trying to double-cross Harley Race in a match in 1978. This is one of those, there's about 17 different sides to this story. (laughs) Even the eyewitness accounts of the match that have circulated, that come from uh, Tom Pritchard, again, seem to fall into the game of telephone where, uh, as the story has been retold, different things are added. There are a lot of people that believe that this was all a rib done by Terry Funk, where mm-hmm. Terry told Harley, be careful, Don's going to double cross you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, like, the story of what happened in the dressing room after the match yep. uh, is disputed as well. Uh, again, we all we all think of Harley Race as this legit tough guy, and I'm sure he was a legit tough guy, yep. but given that Don Slatton was an egotistical lunatic who was the, you know, at times was a policeman and sheriff in Abilene and pretty much, you know, ran the town and had the connections. I don't think, you know, he would have cowered to Harley race in a dressing room confrontation after the match. It seems unlikely, but again, these are, these are just things we'll never know. And, and our listeners say, well, I read this good for you. That doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. And it's like, not, again, not, again, not saying, that Harley was not a tough guy. He was definitely a tough guy. But Harley was really good at perpetuating that, you know, that image and that own and, and the myth and legends that, you know, that followed him. And this story here, as he tells it, uh, is a, good, a great example. Of that. There's, and there's even upon learning it, it was a rip. The way he tells the story, it, it builds him up. Uh, yeah, uh, you yeah. can say maybe maybe I was being lied to, but I wasn't gonna you know I wasn't gonna take that risk. Yep, 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 yep. And it's like there's a great thread on the on the uh, the wrestling classics message board where a couple different guys break down why it was uh, unlikely that it was a uh, legit double cross. Like I think Harley wrestled the next day in Amarillo and continued to wrestle for the Funks for weeks and months and years following right. this incident. Even going back to Abilene, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so and- it's just one of those things. Also, um, go. I checked my notes uh, about Slatten's spot rating. When he's in Abilene, it's a .81. In all the other towns, it's a .53. Oh, wow. So, and that's one of these very rare instances where you can see something like that. Now, in Georgia last month, we talked about Leon Ogle and Choo Choo Lin, but they were guys that only worked in Fred Ward's towns, as opposed to guys that were positioned as main eventers in one promoter's towns and mid-carters in others. This is a very rare instance of something like that. Now, Slatten's other claims to fame was he once wrote, Santa Claus a ticket. Presumably not the real Santa Claus, presumably a shopping mall Santa Claus, but I believe it was failure to use a turn signal or something along those lines. And uh, even around the holidays, Don could not find it in his heart to give Santa Claus a pass and write him a ticket. He also, and this is another one where uh, this has been built up as something more than it is, but Billy Saul Estes. Yeah. who was a noted financier slash fraudster slash friend of uh, LBJ, um, was one of those guys. It, it, it reads very similar to uh, the woman that founded Theranos, where they're a, successful, they're a successful business person, but along the way, they blurred the line between where, you know, of, of where the law is and what's legal and what isn't in their, yeah. in their view that they are brilliant and successful and can do whatever they want. 
because that really seems to me to be the thing with, with, with Theranos. She was obviously brilliant and she couldn't let the fact that her equipment didn't work, even though she raised, you know, millions, if not billions off, you know, being able to do this. She didn't let a little thing like that get in the way of continuing to, you know, lie to investors and raise more money. Yeah. This is the same sort of thing with Estes. Um, In 1962, he had already been indicted and he was out on bail. And uh, he is in, uh, where is it? He's in Abilene and police officer Don Slatton honked his horn Thursday night when a big white Cadillac drove through a stop sign. Mm Mm-hmm. The driver, wearing horn-rimmed glasses and a smile on his face, waved at the officer and continued down the street. Mm-hmm. That guy just looks too friendly, Slatten said aloud and roared away after the Cadillac. <laughs> Slatten finally stops the car a block further down, uh, whips out pad and pencil and says, Okay, fella, what's your name? Billy Saul Estes was the reply. Mm-hmm. Uh, could could I have your driver's license, sir? The stunned policeman said after a double take. And yes, it turns out that this was the Billy Saul Estes who uh, was under investigation by many governmental agencies, uh, mostly involving the Department of Agriculture, who's mm. who, at one point, one of the Department of Agriculture people that were investigating him turned up dead mm-hmm. in what was ruled as a suicide. At one point, mm-hmm. Estes's own accountant turns up dead in what was ruled as a suicide. It's like uh, you could you could do a whole series of podcasts on Billy Saul Estes, but what I what I want to be clear on is, in time, this story has become Slatten accidentally arrested Billy Saul Estes, who was on the lam and wanted by every federal agency. No. That's not the case. Estes was out <laughs> on bail, had already been indicted, yeah. and just happened to run a stop sign. And all that happened was he was written a ticket and uh, released from and jail. And it's interesting, too, because when they were questioning Slatten later, you know, like, well, you know, uh, why did you pull him over? Uh, he was quoted as saying that he had, quote, pretty good knowledge, unquote that his license was expired before he pulled him over. So it's like someone may have given him a tip. Right. Uh, that, that was, that was happening. And this Estes guy is just, Oh my God. Like wild, like so many scams, like non-existent ammonia tanks, the yep. land fraud. Well, he had, he had a small number of ammonia tanks and when investors would come to see them, he would show them a small room with a small number. And then while he's driving them to the next site, Someone else is loading those tanks, speeding yeah. to the next site, and putting those Wild. same tanks with different with different tags for serial numbers. Yeah, yeah. And he was convicted, paroled, and then eight years later, convicted of the same sort of fraud and went to jail again for four or five years. Yeah. And like later in his life, he, you know, just like com- claimed that L- LBJ was involved in the JFK assassination and that Johnson LBJ was involved in the homicides that you're yep. that we're talking about because according to Estes LBJ thought the investigator would uncover the fact that LBJ was in, somehow involved in these these schemes so just a lot of just wild a wild, wild story <laughs> if you're interested in more should google Billy Saul Estes his name is oh, yeah. B I L L I E middle name S O L last name E S 
T-E-S. And you will go down a rabbit hole for days if oh, you're yeah. not if you're not careful. Yep. We talked about Gory Guerrero. Uh, he actually brought in El Santo a few times during the year, and in one case drew a crowd of over seven thousand. Uh, hmm. This was in July of 1971 for Santo teaming with Ricky Romero against the Infernos. Now, a year in the life at chartingtheterritories.com has more attendance figures. We have a handful handful from El Paso. We have a handful from one of the other towns. And then we also have uh, attendance figures for weekly shows in Lubbock, which come from a book written by Jason Freeman. And I believe these attendance figures came from Nick Roberts's own personal journal. Uh, the author of the book was friends with Baby Doll, Nicola Roberts, and uh, was able to get access to Nick Roberts's records for Lubbock. So it's got results and attendance figures for decades worth of shows in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, there's lots of stuff to be learned from reading A Year in the Life, just like John and I learn new things each and every month, which brings us to our monthly segment called This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? Well, at some point during my Ciclo Negro research this last month, I went down not a black hole, but a, a black Guzman hole. Uh, <laughs> at some point in the 60s, he acted as a, a scout of sorts, I guess you could say, for, for the Houston office and was, uh, you know, played a big role in getting Ciclone and a bunch of other Central South American talent into the territory for, for Morris Siegel or Paul Bosch. So... This month I learned that the lead singer of the heavy metal band Wasp, years before he was known as Blackie Lawless, went by the name Blackie Guzman. I think spelled, I've heard that. Spelled G-O-O-Z-E-M-A-N. And that this was indeed uh, a nod to the the, the pro wrestler. Um, did a little searching uh, and uh, found on Twitter let me discover that this fact was confirmed by Vandal Drummond, AKA Kurt Brown a few years back, who if anybody is the perfect person to confirm a fun fact like this, it is Kurt yeah. Brown slash Vandal. Drummond. <laughs> that's, that's wild. We're talking about yeah. uh, ties between wrestling and, and music. Uh, yesterday in my car, I had my iPod on shuffle and the legend of Chavo Guerrero came on oh, no, by okay. the mountain goats. Yeah. Uh, such a, it's a beautiful, touching, you know, tribute to Chavo. Yeah. Um, so, all right, there you go. We learned something new about Blackie Lawless. Yeah. <laughs> what I learned this month uh, involves Ox Baker. Now, last month, of course, we talked about Georgia. One of the big stories in 1972 in Georgia was the death of Ray Gunkel, which in storyline was attributed to uh, the dreaded heart punch of Ox Baker. And... Over time, uh, Ox would be built up not only as being responsible for the death of Gunkel, but also the death of Alberto Torres, based on Torres passing away. Um, well, well, he fell. He, you know, he fell ill after a match with uh, a tag match involving Ox Baker, and died. I think a week or two afterwards from injuries. Uh, uh, but they would always credit Ox as being responsible for the death of not only. Gunkel, but also Torres. However, this month I learned that at the time of Torres's death in the Dusex Territory in Nebraska, credit was given 
not to Ox Baker, but to his partner at the time, who was masked wrestler The Claw, better known as Tom Andrews. Hmm. Which is very interesting because that means that Tom Andrews in 1971 was involved in two very controversial angles. Not only taking credit for the death of Alberto Torres, but later that year when he went to work for Goulas as one half of the interns, the angle where they painted Bearcat um, Brown white. Huh. Wow. That's a that's a, a couple of, that's a hell of a couple of angles for a, a wrestler to have to be uh, involved in. Yeah, that's that's wow. Oof. And. Interesting that my This Month I Learned has to do with Nebraska, because next month on Charting the Territories, we are going to cover the Dusex Territory in Nebraska in 1971. Of course, with Charting the Territories, my goal is to cover all territories, large and small. And in 1971, uh, the Nebraska Territory was definitely on the small side, and it's one that really doesn't get talked about a lot. As a matter of fact, by the end of 1972, it's done. And Joe huh. Dusek is just a local promoter for Vern, promoting Omaha and maybe one other town in South Dakota. But before that time, it was a territory, although in 1971, it's a territory that is clearly on the decline. But it'll be fun to look at the territory and see what a small territory looks like and see who yeah. some of the top stars were. And of course, a sad and sudden death of Alberto Torres also leads to a very unique situation where one wrestler is being used as a regular in two territories at the same time in late 1971. So we'll talk about that next month. You can also find me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. If you want to learn more about Leroy McGurk's territory in the early 1970s, of course, you can check out my book at Amazon or on our website at chartingtheterritories.com. It looks at McGurk's territory from 1971 to 1973. I can also say I have made great progress on my next book, which covers Leroy's territory from 1974 through 1976. Mm. I am still aiming for a spring release although it will almost certainly be towards the latter end of the spring. But that is the plan, is to have that book come out at some point in the next couple of months. So you have that to look forward to. You can also check me out on a recent episode of the Business of the Business podcast, hosted by John Pozorowski and Lavi Margolin. And Lavi, of course, was the author of that book, uh, Trump Mania, oh, yeah. several years back. Uh, so we had a great time. I actually thought we were going to mostly talk about the book. We ended up talking more about Burt Prentice and Bill Barron's, <laughs> um, which was great because, you know, it was also neat to talk about something other than the thing I thought I was going to talk about. They kept me on my toes. <laughs> so you can check that out. Um, the business of the business. Um, episode number one, two, three. Ooh. That's easy to remember. So check that out wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, John, where can our listeners find you, see you, hear you, feel you? Um, well, maybe just, I'll go with one of those. You can find me on Twitter. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, that's about it. Uh, no, feel, no feeling. 
no, you can know you have a feeling you can maybe find me, see me at the grocery store maybe once in a while. Uh, well, which grocery store do you go to? I go to the Key Food in Astoria, Queens. Um, yeah, usually a couple times a week. See you there. Have um, I told you I ran into Mr. Rogers at a, at the supermarket in Pittsburgh uh, when I lived there in the early 90s? No, that's fantastic. Yeah. Was it was it a big deal? Like people, was people, no, a lot of people around him. He just keeps no, himself. People is, to him. He literally does. He literally does this regularly. He just he would just go to the supermarket, and whoever said hi to him, he would take the time to talk to him, and you know, boom, of he would. move on his business. Of course, like how, why why would you of all the celebrities, you know, ninety five percent of them, when you see them in the supermarket and you know say hi, they tell you to screw off or whatever. Mr. Rogers has got to be the one that you would never expect that out of. And sure enough, he lived up to his reputation. Yes. Have you seen the Mr. Rogers documentary? Very good. Very, oh, very, very good. yeah. I bawled my eyes out. Me too. Cried like a, like a child. It's a wonderful, was, wonderful. This has nothing to do with anything, but I was thinking about this yesterday because I saw, uh, I was walking around and I saw uh, at the Braves game last night and I saw a kid uh, upset over something, screaming, crying, bloody murder. And then five seconds later, he was fine and happy and smiling and giggling. <laughs> Meanwhile, I, over the slightest thing that makes me upset, I think about it for days and I'm never the same. <laughs> I remember when I saw that Mr. Rogers movie, a good, you know, however long it was, an hour, 40 minutes of me bawling and crying my eyes out. And then for the next three days, whenever, whenever I would even think about it, I would start tearing up again. Yeah. The way I would stop myself from getting verklempt and thinking of the, of the Mr. Rogers uh, documentary or him in general I would just try to think about how much he loved farts and farting. So that would, uh, I would just get a chuckle out of that and that would stave off the tears momentarily. <laughs> so be sure to check us out next month on charting the farts. <laughs> Sharding the territory. Shart, sh sharting the territory. Oh my goodness. We have gone off the rails. I think we need to wrap this up real quick. The Charting the Territories yeah. podcast comes out on the second Thursday of each and every month going forward. To be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. John, thanks as always for taking us uh, on a travel through West Texas. And I guess we're going to have to, we're going to stay in the, the same sort of general area, except we're going to head further north to Nebraska north. next month. So we will see you next month. See you in May in Nebraska. <laughs>